Section 10 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Chapter 6, Part 2. Near the watershed of La Raya, we saw great flocks of sheep and alpacas, numerous corrals, and the thatched roofed huts of herdsmen. The Quichua women are never idle. One often sees them engaged in the manufacture of textiles, shawls, girdles, ponchos, and blankets, on hand-looms fastened to stakes driven into the ground. When tending flocks or walking along the road, they are always winding or spinning yarn. Even the men and older children are sometimes thus engaged. The younger children, used as shepherds as soon as they reach the age of six or seven, are rarely expected to do much except watch their charges. Some of them were accompanied by long-haired Sunka shepherd dogs, as large as Airedales, but very cowardly, given to barking and slinking away. It is claimed that the Sunkas, as well as two other varieties, were domesticated by the Incas. None of them showed any desire to make the acquaintance of Checkers, my faithful Airedale. Their masters, however, were always interested to see that Checkers could understand English. They had never seen a dog that could understand anything but Quichua. On the hillside near La Raya, Mr. Cook, Mr. Gilbert, and I visited a healthy potato field at an elevation of 14,500 feet, a record altitude for potatoes. When commencing to plow or spade a potato field on the high slopes near here, it is the custom of the Indians to mark it off into squares, by furrows about 15 feet apart. The Quichuas commence their task soon after daybreak. Due to the absence of artificial lighting and the discomfort of rising in the bitter cold before dawn, their wives do not prepare breakfast before ten o'clock, at which time it is either brought from home in covered earthenware vessels or cooked in the open fields near where the men are working. We came across one energetic landowner supervising a score or more of Indians who were engaged in plowing a potato field. Although he was dressed in European garb, and was evidently a man of means and intelligence, and near the railroad, there were no modern implements in sight. We found that it is difficult to get Indians to use any except the implements of their ancestors. The process of plowing this field was undoubtedly one that had been used for centuries, probably long before the Spanish conquest. The men, working in unison and in a long row, each armed with a primitive spade or foot-plow, to the handle of which footholds were lashed, would, at a signal, leap forward with a shout and plunge their spades into the turf. Facing each pair of men was a girl or woman whose duty it was to turn the clods over by hand. The men had taken off their ponchos, so as to secure greater freedom of action, but the women were fully clothed as usual, modesty seeming to require them even to keep heavy shawls over their shoulders. Although the work was hard and painful, the toil was lightened by the joyous contact of community activity. Everyone worked with a will. There appeared to be a keen desire among the workers to keep up with the procession. Those who fell behind were subjected to good-natured teasing. Community work is sometimes pleasant, even though it appears to require a strong directing hand. The boss was right there. Such practices would never suit those who love independence. In the centuries of Inca domination there was little opportunity for individual effort. Private property was not understood. 
everything belonged to the government. The crops were taken by the priests, the Incas, and the nobles. The people were not as unhappy as we should be. One seldom had to labor alone. Everything was done in common. When it was time to cultivate the fields or to harvest the crops, the laborers were ordered by the Incas to go forth in huge family parties. They lessened the hardships of farm labor by village gossip and choral singing, interspersed at regular intervals with rest periods, in which quantities of chicha quenched the thirst and cheered the mind. Habits of community work are still shown in the Andes. One often sees a score or more of Indians carrying huge bundles of sheaves of wheat or barley. I have found a dozen yoke of oxen, each a few yards from the other, in a parallel line, engaged in ploughing synchronously small portions of a large field. Although the landlords frequently visit Lima, and sometimes go to Paris and New York, where they purchase for their own use the products of modern invention, the fields are still cultivated in the fashion introduced three centuries ago by the conquistadores, who brought the first draft animals and the primitive pointed plough of the ancient Mediterranean. Crops at La Raya are not confined to potatoes. Another food plant, almost unknown to Europeans, even those who live in Lima, is cañiwa, a kind of pigweed. It was being harvested at the time of our visit in April. The threshing floor for cañiwa is a large blanket laid on the ground. On top of this the stalks are placed and the flail applied, the blanket serving to prevent the small grayish seeds from escaping. The entire process uses nothing of European origin and has probably not changed for centuries. We noticed also quinoa and even barley growing at an elevation of 14,000 feet. Quinoa is another species of pigweed. It often attains a height of three to four feet. There are several varieties. The white-seeded variety, after being boiled, may be fairly compared with oatmeal. Mr. Cook actually preferred it to the Scotch article, both for taste and texture. The seeds retain their form after being cooked, and do not appear so slimy as oatmeal. Other varieties of quinoa are bitter and have to be boiled several times, the water being frequently changed. The growing quinoa presents an attractive appearance. Its leaves assume many colors. As we went down the valley, the evidences of extensive cultivation, both ancient and modern, steadily increased. Great numbers of old terraces were to be seen. There were many fields of wheat some of them growing high up on the mountainside in what are called temporales, where, owing to the steep slope, there is little effort at tillage or cultivation, the planter trusting to luck to get some kind of crop in reward for very little effort. On April 14th, just above Sicuani, we saw fields where abas beans had been gathered and the dried stalks piled in little stacks. At Ocobamba, or the pampa where oca grows, we found fields of that useful tuber, now just ripening. Nearby were little thatched shelters, erected for the temporary use of night watchmen during the harvest season. The Peruvian highlanders whom we met by the roadside were different in feature, attitude, and clothing from those of the Titicaca Basin, or even of Santa Rosa, which is not far away. They were typical Quichuas, peaceful agriculturists, usually spinning wool on the little hand spindles which have been used in the Andes from time immemorial. 
Their huts are built of adobe, the roofs thatched with coarse grass. The Quichuas are brown in color, their hair is straight and black, gray hair is seldom seen. It is the custom among the men in certain localities to wear their hair long and braided. Beards are sparse or lacking, bald heads are very rare. Teeth seem to be more enduring than with us. Throughout the Andes the frequency of well-preserved teeth was everywhere noteworthy, except on sugar plantations, where there is opportunity to indulge freely in crude brown sugar nibbled from cakes or mixed with parched corn and eaten as a travel ration. The Quichua face is broad and short. Its breadth is nearly the same as the Eskimo. Freckles are not common and appear to be limited to face and arms in the few cases in which they were observed. On the other hand, a large proportion of the Indians are pockmarked and show the effects of living in a country which is free from medical tyranny. There is no compulsory vaccination. One hardly ever sees a fat Quichua. It is difficult to tell whether this is a racial characteristic or due rather to the lack of fat-producing foods in their diet. Although the Peruvian highlander has made the best use he could of the llama, he was never able to develop its slender legs and weak back sufficiently to use it for loads weighing more than eighty or a hundred pounds. Consequently, for the carrying of really heavy burdens, he had to depend on himself. As a result, it is not surprising to learn from Dr. Ferris that while his arms are poorly developed, his shoulders are broader, his back muscles stronger, and the calves of his legs larger and more powerful than those of almost any other race. The Quichuas are fond of shaking hands. When a visiting Indian joins a group, he nearly always goes through the gentle ceremony with each person in turn. I do not know whether this was introduced by the Spaniards or comes down from prehistoric times. In any event, this handshaking in no way resembles the hearty clasp familiar to undergraduates at the beginning of the college year. As a matter of fact, the Quichua handshake is extremely fishy and lacks cordiality. In testing the hand grip of the Quichuas by a dynamometer, our surgeons found that the muscles of the forearm were poorly developed in the Quichua, and the maximum grip was weak in both sexes, the average for the man being only about half of that found among American white adults of sedentary habits. Dr. Alice Herdlicka believes that the aboriginal races of North and South America were of the same stock. The wide differences in physiognomy observable among the different tribes in North and South America are perhaps due to their environmental history during the past 10,000 or 20,000 years. Mr. Frank Chapman of the American Museum of Natural History has pointed out the interesting biological fact that animals and birds found at sea level in the cold regions of Tierra del Fuego, while not found at sea level in Peru, do exist at very high altitudes, where the climate is similar to that with which they are acquainted. Similarly, it is interesting to learn that the inhabitants of the cold, lofty regions of southern Peru, living in towns and villages at altitudes of from 9,000 to 14,000 feet above the sea, have physical peculiarities closely resembling those living at sea level in Tierra del Fuego, Alaska, and Labrador. Dr. Ferris says the Labrador Eskimo and the Quichua constitute the two best-known short-stature races on the American continent. So far as we could learn by questions and observation, about one-quarter of the Quichuas are childless. 
In families which have children, the average number is three or four. Large families are not common, although we generally learn that the living children in a family usually represented less than half of those which had been born. Infant mortality is very great. The proper feeding of children is not understood, and it is a marvel how any of them manage to grow up at all. Coughs and bronchial trouble are very common among the Indians. In fact, the most common afflictions of the tableland are those of the throat and lungs. Pneumonia is the most serious and most to be dreaded of all local diseases. It is really terrifying. Due to the rarity of the air and the relative scarcity of oxygen, pneumonia is usually fatal at 8,000 feet and is uniformly so at 11,000 feet. Patients are frequently ill only 24 hours. Tuberculosis is fairly common, its prevalence undoubtedly caused by the living conditions practiced among the highlanders, who are unwilling to sleep in a room which is not tightly closed and protected against any possible intrusion of fresh air. In the warmer valleys, where bodily comfort has led the natives to use huts of thatch and open reeds, instead of the air-tight hovels of the cold, bleak plateau, tuberculosis is seldom seen. Of course, there are no boards of health, nor are the people bothered by being obliged to conform to any sanitary regulations. Water supplies are so often contaminated that the people have learned to avoid drinking it as far as possible. Instead, they eat quantities of soup. In the marketplace of Sikwani, the largest town in the valley, and the borderline between the potato-growing uplands and lowland maize fields, we attended the famous Sunday market. Many native druggists were present. Their stock usually consisted of medicines, whose efficacy was learned by the Incas. There were forty or fifty kinds of simples and curiosities, cure-alls and specifics. Fully half were reported to me as being useful against fresh air or the evil effects of drafts. The medicines included such minerals as iron ore and sulfur, such vegetables as dried seeds, roots, and the leaves of plants domesticated hundreds of years ago by the Incas, or gathered in the tropical jungles of the lower Urubamba Valley, and such animals as starfish, brought from the Pacific Ocean. Some of them were really useful herbs, while others have only a psychopathic effect on the patient. Each medicine was in an attractive little parti-colored woolen bag, the bags differing in design and color, woven on miniature handlooms, were arranged side by side on the ground, the upper parts turned over and rolled down so as to disclose the contents. Not many miles below Sikwani, at a place called Rachche, are the remarkable ruins of the so-called Temple of Huiracocha, described by Squire. At first sight, Rachche looks as though there were here a row of nine or ten lofty adobe piers, forty or fifty feet high. Closer inspection, however, shows them all to be parts of the central wall of a great temple. The wall is pierced with large doors, and the spaces between the doors are broken by niches, narrower at the top than at the bottom. There are small holes in the doorposts for bar holds. The base of the great wall is about five feet thick and is of stone. The ashlars are beautifully cut, and while not rectangular, are roughly squared and fitted together with most exquisite care, so as to ensure their making a very firm foundation. Their surface is most attractive, but, strange to say, there is unmistakable evidence 
that the builders did not wish the stonework to show. This surface was at one time plastered with clay, a very significant fact. The builders wanted the wall to seem to be built entirely of adobe, yet, had the great clay wall rested on the ground, floods and erosion might have succeeded in undermining it. Instead, it rests securely on a beautifully built foundation of solid masonry. Even so, the great wall does not stand absolutely true, but leans slightly to the westward. The wall also seems to be less weathered on the west side. Probably the prevailing or strongest wind is from the east. An interesting feature of the ruins is a round column about twenty feet high, a very rare occurrence in Inca architecture. It also is of adobe on a stone foundation. There is only one column now standing. In Squire's day the remains of others were to be seen, but I could find no evidences of them. There was probably a double row of these columns to support the stringers and tie-beams of the roof. Apparently one end of a tie-beam rested on the circular column, and the other end was embedded in the main wall. The holes where the tie-beams entered the wall have stone lintels. Near the ruins of the great temple are those of other buildings, also unique so far as I know. The base of the party wall, decorated with large niches, is of cut ashlars carefully laid. The middle course is of adobe, while the upper third is of rough, uncut stones. It looks very odd now, but was originally covered with fine clay or stucco. In several cases the plastered walls are still standing, in fairly good condition, particularly where they have been sheltered from the weather. The chief marvel of Rache, however, is the great adobe wall of the temple, which is nearly fifty feet high. It is slowly disintegrating, as might be expected. The wonder is that it should have stood so long in a rainy region without any roof or protecting cover. It is incredible that for at least five hundred years a wall of sun-dried clay should have been able to defy severe rainstorms. The lintels, made of hardwood timbers, and partially embedded in the wall are all gone, yet the adobe remains. It would be interesting to find out whether the water of the springs near the temple contains lime. If so, this might have furnished natural calcareous cement in sufficient quantity to give the clay a particularly tenacious quality, able to resist weathering. The factors which have caused this extraordinary adobe wall to withstand the weather in such an exposed position for so many centuries notwithstanding the heavy rains of each summer season from December to March, are worthy of further study. It has been claimed that this temple was devoted to the worship of Huiracocha, a great deity, the Jove or Zeus of the ancient pantheon. It seems to me more reasonable to suppose that a primitive folk constructed here a temple to the presiding divinity of the place, the god who gave them this precious clay, the principal industry of the neighboring village is still the manufacture of pottery. No better clay for ceramic purposes has been found in the Andes. It would have been perfectly natural for the prehistoric potters to have desired to placate the presiding divinity, not so much perhaps out of gratitude for the clay as to avert his displeasure and fend off bad luck in baking pottery. It is well known that the best pottery of the Incas was extremely fine in texture. Students of ceramics are well aware of the uncertainty of the results of baking clay. Bad luck seems to come most unaccountably, even when the greatest pains are taken. Might it not have been possible that the people who were most concerned with creating pottery 
decided to erect this temple to ensure success and get as much good luck as possible? Near the ancient temple is a small modern church with two towers. The churchyard appears to be a favorite place for baking pottery. Possibly the modern potters used the church to pray for success in their baking, just as the ancient potters used the great temple of Huiracocha. The walls of the church are composed partly of adobe and partly of cut stones taken from the ruins. Not far away is a fairly recent, though prehistoric, lava flow. It occurs to me that possibly this flow destroyed some of the clay beds from which the ancient potters got their precious material. The temple may have been erected as a propitiatory offering to the god of volcanoes, in the hope that the anger which had caused him to send the lava flow might be appeased. It may be that the Inca Huiracocha, an unusually gifted ruler, was particularly interested in ceramics and was responsible for building the temple. If so, it would be natural for people who are devoted to ancestor worship to have here worshipped his memory. End of section 11